0: Hello listeners and welcome back to The Crash Podcast, which is all about, yes, clinical radiology academics speaking honestly. I'm your host, Tom Termsi, consultant radiologist in Norwich and a former Royal College of Radiologists Röntgen professor from 2020. So as the days here in the UK get shorter and the leaves finally turn and fall, at least one thing has remained the same. Once again, we've strived to bring you the very best guests to share their invaluable insights into all things around academic radiology and research. Now, because of a mutating spike protein or two, the last few years have seen unprecedented restrictions on how we have been able to move around the world, for work, for pleasure, or indeed otherwise. And for some people, travel has always been an integral part of their lives and their academic journey. And today we're going to find out just what drives that when it comes to research and what international experiences can also tell us about how we do academic radiology in the UK. This episode is also in part a reflection on how the Crash podcast has evolved. When we started out in the autumn of 2020, the idea was to highlight academic career progression and options for radiologists in the UK. But as we've been looking a bit deeper into where our listeners, that's you, are based, it's become clear that you are tuning in from all over the world. And let me just give you a few examples from the past September alone. Australia, India, um, Iceland, United States, Austria, Nepal, Canada, Ireland and even unknown. So it's been amazing to know that you've been joining us from all over the world so I hope that our conversation today is of particular interest to you and that you will reach out and get in touch to share your own experiences afterwards. So embracing yet another facet of this great experience that is research I'm delighted to introduce our first guest Julia Benedetti who is a consultant radiologist at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital in London. Hi Julia thank you so much for joining us particularly given how much you have on your hands right now.
1: Hi, hi, Tom. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here. And uh, yes, I'm just going to warn you, if you might hear some cooing, might be married to newborn around, but hopefully you won't.
0: Oh, congratulations. (laughs) Is it a boy or a girl? he's a boy yeah he's a boy boy fantastic well I look I look to hearing his opinions as well on what we're talking about today (laughs) great look look, and, and I'm equally delighted to introduce our second guest Gina Pakpour who is an academic clinical fellow and ST2 at University College London and also an RCR leadership fellow for training outcomes hi Gina it's great to have you with us
2: hi Tom thanks for having me
0: brilliant stuff right so this is going to be yet another exciting expedition I'm really looking forward to unfolding the map of your careers so far following the trail of where you've been discussing why and seeing what you have marked out for the future as well so why don't we start with you Julia please tell us a little bit more about yourself your background and how you came to be where you are today
1: I trained in Italy, Uh, I'm Italian uh, in origin. I trained in Italy, Milan. I did my medical training and also my radiology training in Milan. And I have to say that the radiology training in Milan is actually quite similar in Italy. It's quite similar to the UK training in radiology. I did five years because I didn't do any IR training. I wasn't really into my interests. And um, toward the end of my specialty, I actually got to choose my subspecialty. And I've always been interested in cardiothoracic imaging, particularly cardiac imaging, but both of them, obviously. And um, so I decided to, to do a fellowship um, in the UK. So I came to London for a fellowship in cardiac imaging, precisely cardiac MRI uh, at Barts. Uh, it was a clinical and academic fellowship. And um, so that was just uh, more than one year. It lasted more than one year. Then I had to go back to Italy to finish my training. And then after that, I came back to the UK, And I remember at the time I was, oh, should I do another fellowship? Should I just apply for a job? What shall I do? And um, I actually just went for a, you know, a locum job. started as a locum and then I, you know, this turned into a substantive post. And I'm very happy of the choice I made um, because, you know, you sort of have to start at some point. Right. And uh, so, yeah, that's uh, where I am now.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Well, you're absolutely brilliantly positioned to tell us about uh, experiences and some reflections on how you see things. Thank you so much for the introduction, Julia. That's absolutely fantastic. Look, there's no getting around this particular checkpoint in the podcast, which is looming in front of you, which is, of course, the crash test. Now, here's a quick reminder for everyone and an introduction for you, Julia. They're going to, there's going to be five numbers to choose for you each from the now extremely well-travelled crash test grid. I hope you can now see that in full on view. These questions could be about anything, but there is a rather obvious theme today that you'll see. So, Julia, please, why don't you start us off with the first number?
1: Number five.
0: What is your favourite art gallery or museum or art collection?
1: Oh, I have to go with a very small one back in my hometown, which is called Ricci Oddi. I know no one will know it, but you know it's very, very affectionate to the tiny gallery where I've in my in the little town where I've grown, and uh, so I'm gonna go with that one. And please, you all, you're all welcome to Google it and uh, find out more and come and visit uh, the gallery when you go back to you know when you will visit Italy because it's a very nice one, Ricci Oddi with double D.
0: Brilliant, excellent! Oh, I can't refuse that invitation. Okay, let's see. What's your next number? I'm going to go with number three, please. If you had to eat the food from just one country for the rest of your life, which would that be? And I wonder if the answer might be obvious.
1: <laughs> it's a bit of an obvious answer, I have to say, because look, I'm Italian. What 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 am I going to say? Probably Italian food. But I'm going to give you a second, uh, my second choice as well, which is Indian food. And I'm going to say that this is influenced by, by Asmund because he's um, British Indian and I really love Indian food. So, you know. Let's go with my first choice, Italian, second, Indian.
0: Excellent stuff. Okay, what's your third number?
1: I'm going to go with number 10, please.
0: What's your next trip abroad going to be?
1: Actually, my next trip abroad is going to be Chicago uh, to go and visit some family. I don't really know when precisely, but it's going to happen probably early next year. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to okay, it. Okay, not, not
0: SNA that's coming up very not shortly. A, I thought no. that was going to be... Yeah, okay,
1: no, all right. no, okay. no. <laughs> not this time. Okay. Around.
0: So next number? I'm going to go with number one. How many times did you fail your driving test? Now, we love this question here on the Crash Podcast. Uh, so what have you got for us? I have to say zero
1: I just passed it but but I remember that um, I was uh, I think I was uh, almost you know gonna make a big mistake a big uh, mistake because I remember they asked me please turn at the roundabout please turn right and I was so I think I was a bit like nervous and I was about to turn left so I did the roundabout a couple of times and I was oh my gosh please please, (laughs) let me let me me get this right and eventually did it so they they, you know they didn't really they weren't too strict with me and uh, it was
0: okay okay that was all right then okay so Gina we do like to ask everyone this one so Gina tell us how many times did you fail
2: you know what? It's a zero for me as well, actually. I, I did, But I only did automatic, so I don't know if that makes it a lot easier. I, I did like um, one of those two-week crash courses where you drive automatic every day and then take um, the test at the end.
0: Well, that's an appropriately named course for the podcast. Where did you take your test then? Where was it? In the UK or somewhere else?
2: No, I did it here, yeah.
0: Good. Okay, look, uh, Julia, let's come back to you. I think you have one more question on the crash test. Go on then. Question number six, please. Where would you most like to visit where you have not yet been?
1: I'd love to go to Japan. I haven't, I've never been to Japan and I really love to yeah to go there so it's uh, it's on my list of trips to do definitely
0: well I'm gonna really make you feel jealous I've literally went to Japan this summer on a research trip first research trip back after after lockdown I know (laughs) it was you know very very good I cannot recommend it highly enough it's so so different but so familiar and people are so wonderful and so much history and food wow thanks Julia for doing the crash test
2: Thank you, Tom.
0: Right, Gina, let's come over to you. Let's hear all about you. Why don't you tell us some more about yourself, your background, and how you came to be where you are today?
2: Actually, I was born and grew up in Gothenburg in Sweden. Uh, My parents had immigrated there when they were younger. Um, I lived there until I was 15. And when I was 15, I moved to North London, Uh, went to med school at Cambridge from there. And while I was in med school in between my fifth and sixth year, I did my medical elective in a uh, lab in Baltimore in the US. And I had such a great time there and learned so much during that summer that when I came back uh, to finish med school here, I decided to, after med school, go there and do a research fellowship. So that's how I ended up going back there. And it was very much a one thing, kind of led to another situation. I ended up staying there for a few years. I um, Actually thought I would end up doing all my clinical training there at that point. And I ended up doing my surgical internship year there and a year of radiology as well. But then COVID happened and uh, priorities changed and things changed. And I was really fortunate to get this um, post in London. I'm, and I'm now really glad to be back here. And I've just finished my first year of training back here again.
0: That's right. So in an ACF post. Yes. Excellent, fantastic. All right, well, look, that is a fascinating journey. We're going to have so much to call upon to talk about today, but let's call upon Eugenia to take on the next step of the crash test. Okay, which number would you like?
2: All right, let's go for two.
0: Have you ever been searched at customs? <laughs> and I'll tell you why I'm, I have thought about that question. <laughs>
2: I have never personally been searched at customs, but I swear, I think my name is somehow flagged in like the US um, Homeland yeah. Security system because every single time that I travel, my bag gets searched every time without exception. One time I flew with a layover in Iceland and there was like an overhead uh, sound thing just had Gina four come to security and I had to get my bag searched at the airport. I've just never, ever traveled there and back without having my bag searched, but never been searched personally.
0: It's funny that whenever I go to the States, I get asked, excuse me, Sarah, can you tell us about your trip to Pakistan in 2010? And I I, yeah, yes, I'll tell you again. I went to my friend's wedding, but they every time they ask. You know, that question was actually prompted by the fact that a customs officer in Australia had to scrape dog poo off the underside of my shoe when I went there previously. They routinely check that kind of thing. But anyway, let's move on quickly. Next one, Gina.
2: Um, Okay, I'll go for
0: four. Say hello in as many different languages as possible
2: so it's easy in swedish because in swedish it's hey or hello uh, i know that in farsi it's and people will definitely create my pronunciation of this but it's like salam and do I know any other ones hola in spanish is mm-hmm. that italian hello in mean, you know, <laughs> better than me bonjour
0: that certainly fit the bill all right what's the next number seven if you had to choose at dinner, say you're eating out, would you rather have a starter or, you know, first course appetizer type thing or would you go for dessert?
2: Definitely starter. Yeah, definitely starter over dessert.
0: Good. OK, next one. Eight. Well, which monument or landmark has left the biggest impression on you?
2: I'm going to say the Washington Monument, uh, but mostly because uh, I had a great trip there and saw it really late at night when it was dark everywhere. and it was lit up and so it was really beautiful but I don't know that it was very um sentimentally meaningful or not
0: yeah I- yeah and I'm, my east coast geography is really poor that's not too far from where you were in in Baltimore is it or is that you know yeah no actually...
2: they're
0: really close yeah okay fine fine because as is with all things in the states when it comes to geography you sort of think oh that's not far and then you realize it's like hundreds of kilometers or something like that okay right last one then here we go well there's no choice really it's number nine sorry what was your earliest memory from medical school
2: my earliest memory is definitely a dissection table we at my medical school we did dissection full body dissections from the first week of med school and uh yeah some people ticked it right away um I want to say a lot of the the men checked it right away keen to get stuck in with the scalpels I was not one of those people I thought it took me a long time to get used to very much so and I think um that whole anatomy course with doing it with full body dissection, if my anatomy supervisor then knew that I went into radiology, which is so anatomy oriented, he'd be absolutely shocked because I uh,
0: <laughs> definitely came later in life. Well, I wonder if we were... We, our, our feet trod at the same dissection table because I did the same undergraduate course as you and my first memory was the formalin from dissection and feeling really hungry by about 11 o'clock halfway through the, <laughs> the actual session. i can ask you, Julia, actually, did you do dissection in Milan as part of your medical school training?
1: Well, I did, but it wasn't uh, something that structured, I have to say. So we had like same experience uh, of the section, but it wasn't like a full course, you know, something regular. Mm-hmm. It wasn't on a regular basis. It was a few sessions. That's it. Yeah.
0: Of course, this is a, a long, fascinating history of Italian anatomists and dissection as well. Okay, look, Gina, Julia thank you so much for doing the crash test. <laughs> OK, so let's move on to the main discussion for this episode. Now, while the idea today is to explore what it's like to experience working in radiology and research outside of the UK, we're also going to explore what similarities and differences you, Julia and Gina, have experienced with the UK system and pick apart some ideas for how we might you know, optimise, improve, change, you know, develop our academic radiology experience here in the UK. So, Julia, if I can come back to you again, tell us in a little bit more detail. And I know you said it was quite similar about your clinical radiology training, like exams and subspecialization and you told us you did it in Milan but I'm interested to know about that structure because the structure of training is quite important for someone for example in Gina's position when if doing the ACF and it can be tricky to balance research time and tell us about the research time you also had in your training.
1: So uh, in terms of clinical training um, so I did five years of radiology and basically um it was structured in a way that uh, we were moving uh, to toward... all. I know that one difference is that, for example, we were moving toward different techniques. For example, I was doing, I don't know, my... X-ray block, which is probably something that you do here as well. Then I was doing my ultrasound block, but then I was doing my MRI block. So in my MRI block, I was getting to, you know, see all the different uh, um, subspecialties within the MRI block. And then I was doing my CT block. So, you know, it was blocks based on techniques, which on some aspects, you know, to a certain extent is similar, for example, for the X-ray and the ultrasound, correct me, please correct me if I'm wrong. But, you know, um, while... To other extent is actually different because for example if you think about the mri and the ct mm. we get to do a full block based on the technique where we get to see all the different disease and pathologies based on the technique then you can sort of um, well you do a bit of breast um, you do you can do ir um, or you can't i mean that's something up to you i have to say in italy it's five years anyway so most likely if you pick up IR you will have to maybe sacrifice something else maybe breast um, or you can do also breast but maybe do a a shorter period in breast imaging for example. Um, We don't have a sixth year for IR uh, as you do here in the UK but uh, in my, for example, in my own experience, because I uh, did a fellowship, I didn't do my IR because you know I didn't have any way, you know, I, I sort of had the possibility, the opportunity mm-hmm. of choosing to avoid IR, for example. um Now said that you do this sort of, you know, multiple um, blocks based on techniques, and then you can sort of choose what subspecialty you like, and so you can focus a bit more on the subspecialty. Let's say you like MSK, you can do, you know. Um, take part uh, more often to the session of MRI and, you know, ultrasound and all the other things related to MSK radiology. So, you know, go with you know, spread within different techniques based on the topic. In my case, so my interest has always been, as I told you earlier, cardiothoracic imaging, particularly cardiac imaging. And um, I have to say, I picked this up quite early again, because of the structure of the Italian system. Uh, because uh, when I was a last year medical student, this is really when I started to, to have an interest in cardiac imaging. And then, you know, I sort of kept going. I kept the interest because, you know, I, I confirmed that this, is something, this was something I liked. Uh, so I started when I was the last year medical student because when you get to that stage, when you get to your final exam, as a medical student you don't only have an exam but you also have to prepare a thesis so you have to write a sort of manuscript and then present you know your uh, your manuscript your research and this could be something where you just review something which is existing and already known uh, that has been into your interest and so you do a sort of research into that but on something already existing or you could do something more experimental we call it in Italy which is basically more real research based Uh, and this is what I did because I remember doing an internship in radiology because I was interested you know in radiology I was already thinking about that so I did an internship in radiology which was longer than the other internship obviously because i had this interest and um my professor um told me look um, why don't you do something you know on a research project Uh, and there were a few different topics and I picked up cardiac MRI because I was quite interested it was something that was really interesting me so um, yeah I started with that and this is how I really got to you know start to do some research get to know what it was as a medical student Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and then as a um, trainee in radiology uh, we were we were in my hospital. It's not like that in every hospital. I have to say, but in my hospital, San Rafael Hospital, which was I have to say it was a I I Looking back, I think it was a good training uh, hospital, um, and I'm really grateful, you know, for the opportunities they gave me. Um, I I remember that we were all, you know, welcome to do some research throughout our training. And we were allowed one day of research, actually half day, of re- one PA, basically, half day of research a week as training.
0: May I ask that that's quite a lot of time and we'll come on to talk to Gina about how much time she has in her training. But what do you think the motivation is behind that? Is it because there's a culture for wanting to develop research or is it because research is regarded as just, well, of course, that's part of training?
1: I think it's a lot related to culture I think there's really I think uh, Italians really love doing research they really have this you know a very investigative uh, approach and uh, I think they really like they really find it interesting they really find it prestigious uh, and something that they really love uh, uh, doing and um, they also see it as something which is uh, useful to develop you know as a sort of trainee and develop some skills that then even if you want using your future it's good to you know have. so everyone is really welcome to do a bit and this is why we all had the opportunity of having that one session one pa of research uh, every week mm. obviously mm. the more you were doing the more you know if, if if then you were not that interested you could sort of avoid yeah. the session but on the other hand i have to say that um, we don't have something like what Gina is doing, for example. We don't have a structured, you know, academic clinical fellowship or you know, this sort of fellowship, we don't really have them that well structured in Italy. So this is something which is quite different in between the UK and Italy.
0: Mm. So you then picked up on cardiac MR as your research interest and you then had another opportunity to give some dedicated time for a project or research fellowship or was it the the move to the UK you said to Barts I believe where you then really developed your research interests further?
1: So I have to say, then I, throughout my training in radiology, I kept uh, doing some research and I developed my, uh, you know, skills and interest throughout my training, because I kept doing a bit and I found it very interesting. And so I kept going and I, you know, I took part to different projects um, and I took on more and more. And then I decided that I would have liked to do an experience abroad uh, to see, you know, I was, system is uh, somewhere else, somewhere different from Italy, so I moved to the UK for my fellowship and the fellowship was both clinical and academic. So there I developed further skills related to, you know, both clinical skills and academic skills, very focused on cardiac uh, MRI, because this was the topic of my fellowship, which was my subspecialty, you know, what I was doing as a my personal interest. But um, I have to say it has been really a sort of gradual development throughout, uh, you know, from the last year of medical school mm-hmm. up to now.
0: Gina, let's come and ask you. Now, you're clearly a little bit earlier in your radiology career, but I'm I'm fascinated about the move to that fellowship in in Baltimore and then the return after having done some clinical training. Tell us a bit more about what happened all there.
2: Yeah. So when I went there for my elective, I really had no plans at that time to move. It hadn't been something that I had been looking to do. I hadn't taken the the USMLE exams. Um, But when I got there, I thought it was really interesting to see how their health system worked and how different it was to our health system. And I think for many things, they do worse than us. I think there's also many things that they do better. And a lot of that, I think, is in training. Um, And I went there during a time when myself and I think a lot of people uh, at at the same level as me were feeling quite disillusioned with medicine here. It was the time of, uh, there had just been the junior doctor strikes. I don't know if you remember at that sort of time period.
0: Can you remember what would that year have been?
2: 2016.
0: Okay. And
2: I felt like I got a renewed sense of enthusiasm for medicine out there seeing how um, what I felt was like really the forefront of medicine and it was very exciting to me and so having spent that summer there I just felt like I had more to gain and more to learn about just like how they did things and the, I was really lucky that I found a really great mentor out there. And so it became very hard to leave. And so when I came back to finish med school, I, I actually wanted to stay there for a year right away. But my director of studies at the time strongly advised against it and said, you don't want to take a year out during med school um, because people will think that you had to that you're basically the force to because, you, you know, if you failed something, I can't remember what the word for it is. Like when you
0: just, I can't remember what
2: yeah essentially
0: and and (laughs) so bye bye
2: yeah and so I so I was like fine I won't go right away but then I do want to go after I finish my medical training my med school and I remember my clinical dean um, was like I strongly advise against this f1 of two is a steep learning curve you should not go right now but I just had a strong feeling that it was either now or never it was an opportunity and it was hard to get which is that I was uh, the opportunity had arisen for me to be funded to do research fellowship. And I know that many people go there and they sort of work for free, but I wasn't in a financial position to be able to do that. Um, so I just ended up going for it and I applied for F1 the following year, but I just loved it there. And I really enjoyed doing research. It was my, really my first experience of doing research. I um, was working for a great neurologist and a great neuroradiologist um, who sort of took me under their wing and I felt very supported and um like they're very invested in me and my training. And so it became again very hard to leave. A year turned into two. I remember sitting in my mentor's office at the end of that first year. We were talking about wrapping up my project so I could take up my F1 post here. And I just remember him saying, well, do you just want to stay? And I was kind of like, well, yeah, Ashley I do kind of want to stay. I'm I'm having a really great time. And you know, I was in my early 20s and uh, didn't have anything to lose. Um, and so that's sort of how that transpired. And at the time, of course, the world felt very small and it was very easy to travel back and forth. Yeah. And I, you know, as time progressed, I was having difficulties, which we can talk about later as well, so, you know, visas and then COVID oh. happened. And actually, I think I realized as time went on that it's very different going there temporarily versus wanting to stay there, especially the US, which is very, very difficult um, with visas and things like that
0: so tell us what was the actual research that you were doing with your neuroradiology neurology mentor
2: so um we were doing largely uh quality improvement focused research we were looking at patients with multiple sclerosis and their scanning um the outcomes of those scans and the role of radiology um, and then separately in a neuroscience lab uh we uh did some more basic science neuro research at the time i was i thought i wanted to be a neurologist um yes. and it was focused on um the learning of motor skills and movement um but i i was lucky that i um, had the chance to work with both departments and i ended up spending most of my time towards end and just the radiology department
0: and um, never so you started back. to feel, that, yeah, you used to feel that inexorable pull towards yeah, imaging absolutely. because absolutely. radiology really doesn't do its presence well within the early stages of someone's medical career and training. It doesn't really push the presence, and I hope that we can try and do something about that, particularly with respect to research. And I remember myself also finding, well, actually, I'm drawn to the imaging in every kind of cl- clinical experience that I'm having, and that's how I sort of gravitated towards. Now, Gina, for you, you. Then did do some clinical work in the US. So that must have meant the US MLE examinations. Did, did it mean going into clearing? Yes. What's that called? What's the it called? Match
2: again? the MAP.
0: Okay, match. That's it, yes.
2: Um I did take the USML exams. They were extremely, extremely difficult. Gosh, I don't know how they oh, how their to do it. So they're like eight-hour exams each one. Um Wow. But I I knew I had to take them to be able to do any clinical work there. I ended up staying. Uh, at Hopkins for my surgical year, which is sort of equivalent to F one, um, and then I did. So i that was. So you do an internship there before you start your radiology training, uh, either in surgery or medicine. So I did mine in surgery, and then I moved to Philadelphia for my year of radiology and both were really really interesting experiences I mean I think for me it, it was very different working there clinically to really get a perspective on the health system compared to just being there doing research I think being in the health system you know the sort of you think the US and UK at least I always thought they're very similar for example gunshot wounds daily thing as a surgical intern I mean that's very very common so even the pathology they see is actually very different even though you would think it'd be very similar at least that was my experience and the role of the doctor there it's, it is all quite different there it's much more formalized they have they're much better supported in my opinion in terms of uh clinical other clinical staff lobotomists things like things like that um but i mm-hmm. actually ended up becoming i think a bit clinically de-skilled um because um I remember when I came back and started my um, ST1 year here, one of my first rotations was Euro radiology. And I remember being in the clinic room with one of my consultants because we were doing an interventional list. And he just off the cuff mentioned like, oh, can you just take bloods from this patient? They don't have to take bloods. And I realized <laughs> like, I don't know how to do this. Um, even though I had this like excellent clinical training year compared to UK trainees, I felt like the skills are quite different. Um, And I remember being really embarrassed to say, I'm really sorry, like, you're gonna have to take the bloods. I don't know how to take the bloods. Because I (laughs) haven't done it since a mannequin in my final year of OSCEs in med school. Um, So even though, you know, we do surgery here, they do surgery there, I do think it's very different being a trainee and the focus. Um, And then my year of radiology, you know, really gave me an insight into the differences of working in a public health system versus a very private one.
0: Mm. Um,
2: their volumes are very, very high. Um, the expectations of trainees, I think, are different. I think they leverage their trainees in some ways a lot better than we do here. Um, and but in other ways, I think um, you know, this pros and cons to each system.
0: Yeah, can I ask you? You said uh, leverage their trainees. Just expand on that. What do you mean by that a little bit?
2: So in the U. So in uh, Um, Speaking for the radiology departments that I worked at, you know, a lot of the reporting that they do is templated reporting, um, which, you know, I think there's mixed opinions about that in England and Europe at the moment, but it's very big there. Mm. And so they get Mm. their. So when you're using templated reporting and everyone uses the same reporting style, consultants and trainees, trainees become much quicker, I think, at formulating reports to a standard that consultants find acceptable um so trainees are very much part of the team of clearing the list and then where I was you know the list had to be cleared by the end of the day any scan done that day was reported that day um and so you sort of work with your consultants to clear the list whereas here I feel like it's very much the consultants you know are responsible for the list and you pick up a few scans and they go over them and it's more for your training whereas there I feel like you're much more part of uh, the output of the reporting uh, from an earlier stage compared to here and there it's absolutely standard that second year trainees prelim their reports and take on calls whereas here you know, some programs at uh, SD3 and other programs it's uh, SD2 um, so in, in that yeah. way I think they get more of the trainees early.
0: Yeah, I can see this actually, because if you're checking something that isn't the same order than my mind, and and it tells you something a little bit about my mind as well, if it's not in the same order, then you don't necessarily have the same speed of guarantee that all the really important things are being covered. And you do remove some of that individuality. This is a notorious reflection on reporting in the UK is that, well, you know, you can get a different report from 10 different radiologists. And yes, templating would make a a big difference on, on that respect. But in that system, did you get the sense of any time for research or any latitude for trainees or was it really as you say about hitting the numbers
2: no I think uh, I think they're they're very focused on both aspects I think especially at academic institutions um, they very much see their trainees as representing the program and output from trainees is favorable to the program so it's very much a win-win situation and they in my experience know most programs at least that I knew of um, we had you know my program they had half a day a week every single trainee um, for doing research quality improvement projects whatever you wanted to do um, and unlimited um, conferences as long as you're presenting and very generous funding I mean there were, we got two thousand dollars per conference if you were presenting to go to so they really wanted you to represent the program in that way and um, it was very, very favorable. And they didn't have, here we have this much stronger distinction with you have your ACFs and your clinical lectureships. Uh, to go from an ACF to a clinical lecture, you need to have either an MD or a PhD. It's very formalized in my opinion. Whereas in the US, it's very much a, anyone who's interested, you can do a little bit, you can do a little bit more, but there isn't that set requirement. And people always ask me when they find out that I went for a couple of years to do research, they did you do a PhD. And it honestly didn't even cross my mind because there it's not mm. seen as formally as, as a requirement. Many yeah. academic consultants there don't ever do it.
0: Yeah. Julia, can I ask you about that within the Italian system? You already hinted that you get the same half, half a day. Are, are there formalized academic posts that you could take up if you wished within the Italian system?
1: Yes, so I have to say exactly, it's probably sort of similar to what Gina just described, because uh, the academic component is more you know um, already built in and part of everyday activity it's not something uh, you know seen that separate as it is here probably um, said that uh, I have to say that yes you can sort of you know become an associate professor and then maybe a professor over time um, to do that you still need some titles so um, I think before until a few years ago probably we didn't really need the PhD but now I think it's something which is a bit more needed it's I'm not sure if it's essential but it's a bit you know it's better to have done something which is like a PhD or a sort of at least an MD or something similar even if an MD doesn't really exist in Italy you can just you know you can just do a PhD you don't really have many other sort of forms of uh, acad- formal academic uh, uh, titles but you do need a certain amount of publication you do need a certain you know to have for example got a grant or this sort of thing but uh, it's definitely a little bit uh, um, it's definitely less structured than it is in the UK I would say yeah definitely
0: I mean it's from my my relatively limited view of of the world I do see that the radiologists that I have met who have come from, from Italy their CV is just a different landscape when it comes to research and they're not in academic posts and it is quite astonishing you talked about your professor at some stage. Was that a clinical professor or an academic professor? Was there an academic structure alongside or is this all really just happening from within the hospital?
1: That's the thing. It's all one title. You don't really have an academic professor or a clinical professor. Basically, if you become a professor, that's it. That's the title that you have. And usually it's based on all your, you know, you need to do to have both your clinical and academic skills to get that title. And then you sort of, usually, um, for example, the heads of departments, usually they are professors. So again, it's a bit different structure from here because, you know, I think it's quite different, but it's all much more. Uh, one same pot, right? So it's all together and to become, to get to certain level uh, of your career, you sort of need to become a professor and to
0: become a professor you sort of need to do both, right? Gina, let's come back to you. You tantalizingly dropped in there that there were some challenges that you faced. Visas, I think, and if you don't mind from a personal perspective, because like these big moves, having to lift your life across an ocean, different continents. what kind of challenges were you alluding to? What what decisions have you had to make on the basis of those?
2: I think initially, I think on both a personal and professional level, it it felt quite easy uh, because I was in a natural transition having just finished medical school. Um, and so that was a good time period uh, for me to make that change. Um, and I think personally, because I was, in, you know, I was in my early twenties, I was single. It wasn't. I didn't find that aspect hard either. But I could imagine it would be if you did it at a different time point in life. Uh, but once I got there, and yeah, I think it's it's very easy to get visas and things like that when you're there temporarily and you're there for a research fellowship or, or a temporary clinical fellowship or something of that nature. But once you decide you want to stay there, um, then you start at realizing that the integration system is actually very difficult and in many ways, is set against immigrating doctors. Uh, They have different visa types, and the the type of visa that doctors are generally offered for clinical work is a very unfavorable one uh, that dictates a lot of their opportunities after their graduate training. And anyone who's been through it would know what I mean when I talk about the, the J-1 visa for clinical um, doctors, and so I was really wanted to avoid that very much so, because it also limits the sorts of institutions and the research that you can do after you finish training. So then I was like, "Do I get a green card? Can I get other visa types? And I ended up trying to get a green card, and I did get one, but it was very, very difficult and i I think if mm. I'd known some of those stressors before, it might have actually changed um, my decision of whether to stay there, but in a way, yeah. I, I didn't know, and I learned things as I went along. Um, I think um, being away from family and friends gets increasingly difficult and I was there during pretty much Trump's presidency and that uh, caused the immigration backlogs at the time and so I was my, I think there was over a year where I couldn't even travel because my green card was stuck in a backlog Um, and then COVID happened.
0: Yeah, some interesting factors there that are beyond anyone's control, really, apart from perhaps the voting public. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I mean, I spent um, some time very soon after qualifying. In fact, after my house jobs, after the first year of of training, we went to Australia with uh, my now wife and we worked there for almost a year and uh, yeah it just resonated what you said about family it's that we had a a great time there and I wasn't research minded at that time at all and I was just working in in emergency medicine as part of my training I don't say just because I say just because it was part of my my, my training experience and really we sort of started thinking you know this is a long way away from our family being on the other side of the world Um, and that became a huge factor in deciding that we would definitely return Uh, Julia uh, can I ask similarly uh, for you some of the challenges about moving between countries you know professional and personal can you shed some light on what those were like for you
1: definitely well I have to say that uh, probably it's uh, easier to move in within Europe rather than you know from a European country to the US. Well, or uh, it was exactly <laughs> now 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 it has changed slightly but anyway um, well uh, for me in my in my time I had to basically register with the JMC So one well first of all i needed well i needed to register with the GMC. um the study you know the, the the my medical license is recognized here so that's absolutely fine i needed to do an english test which was the ielts and i remember that you need to do this test with, with a certain score which is quite high, high and i remember that many of my uh friends or you know other people were trying to move to the uh, to, to the uk were actually struggling with this test which i know it sounds quite you know funny maybe but um we study English, but at the end of the day, Italy is very much you know, a country where we are all Italians. Now most of us are Italians and we don't really get much exposure to uh, another language. So actually quite a few people are struggling to get the right uh, the right um, uh, score. Uh, anyway, we need. I needed to do that. And now I know that another test has been introduced, which is actually a medical test because the IELTS is not based on medicine. It's just, you know, you have to write a theme on general culture, economics or something like that. You need to do a listening. Wow.
0: Uh,
1: yeah, then it's like, a, 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 a chat with uh, with these uh, examiners where you have to talk again about you know general culture and general you know um, actual uh, you know economics and other problems like that um, so this is all what it is. Um, while now they've introduced, I think, uh, over the last couple of years, another test which is uh, based on medicine. So it's a bit easier because you know you get more exposure to English within the medical um, field because when you you know when you read papers, when you study, you get a lot much more exposure. So it's slightly easier. Anyway, you just have to do this English test with a certain score, then you can register with the JMC with a, a series of bureaucracy, you know, bureaucratic stuff that you have to fill in. Um, and that's one thing. And then you have to basically register on the specialty mm, register. But again, um, the radiology training I did in Italy is basically, the my, my final exam is the FRCR equivalent. So, mm, yes, you just need to, again, some bureaucratic uh, bits and then that's it. So I had to do all these... Things, but um, it wasn't uh, too painful. Let's say it took a few months, yeah. but because it still takes time. Um, but it wasn't too too difficult. Um, so that's one thing for sure. Um, on the other hand, um, well, uh, personally, I mean, on a more personal point level, again, uh, you are not that far from home because at the end of the day, I'm from. You know, I was studying and living in Milan. My hometown is really next to Milan. So it's a two-hour flight. So it's quite easy to yeah. go back and forth. And you don't feel that long distance, right, with your family and your friends, Um so that's for sure. On the other end, obviously, when you move to a new country, it's always there are always challenges because you know you need to find a place where to stay. You need to find you know many aspects that you really need to understand, and uh, you know, no one is mm-hmm. you know you don't know about the apps to how to find a house how to find uh, all these different things. But you know, this is like whatever you are going to move, this is always the same. So, so yeah,
0: can I can I ask then when you first arrived? How did you? What were you? What was your feeling when you that very first time? You know, when you were trying to. Find find your feet what was what was going through your your mind
1: I have to say I was quite excited I was really happy and excited because I think I really wanted to, you know, do an experience abroad and I remember discussing at the time back in Italy with my, again, my professor, which was the head of the department, who was also my supervisor, who was really, you know, a great supervisor, great great um, teacher. Uh, I remember discussing, look, I like to do an experience abroad and it was very supportive and we thought, where can you go? You have this interesting cardiac imaging, so maybe a good center, a very good center especially for cardiac MRI is BART's, heart center, so the this was been, you know, one opportunity. The other opportunity, I was oriented on Europe because, you know, as I told you mm. earlier, this was anyway my thought because it was a bit easier, probably. Um, and um, otherwise, we thought maybe the Netherlands because also in the Netherlands there are some good centers for um, for cardiac imaging. But at the end, I think I decided I went for. I got in touch with both, but I decided I went for London also because I um, really like the city. I have to be honest.
0: Gina, just the same for you when you first arrived uh, that first time in in the States, what were you feeling? How did you sort of take in your surroundings and and again, also find your feet?
2: So when I uh, probably moved there, when I went to do my research fellowship, I was lucky that I went to the same lab that I had done my left events. I already knew some people and uh, I was already sort of familiar with the hospital and the areas. So I I sort of knew what kind of area I wanted to live in and... um, I think I was really lucky when I moved there. I I moved into a house at great housemates um, and, you know, I met people through the lab that I I felt like my initial adaptation um, went okay, actually. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And I was really enjoying meeting a lot of new people and experiencing America and American culture and traveling a bit within America and just seeing how interesting of a country and place it is to visit.
0: Yeah, you know, the first thing that happened to me when I got to Australia was I put on a lot of weight. <laughs> I ate so much food because for me, that's a huge part of the travel and the excitement of, you know, all the different influences that you can experience. So I had to really work hard when I got back to shed some of that.
1: Yeah, The same happened to me when I came to the UK because um, obviously in Italy, we all go with Italian food, which I love and it's great. But here in the UK, you find mm. every sort of food, right? So I remember going around and trying every sort of, you know, restaurant and everything and you know also fast food everything and yeah particularly great.
0: in london it, oh, it's yeah in london such a rich restaurant and food and just culturally all over it's so diverse so i think we touched on this gina a little bit about why you came back but could you just sort of formalize what the specifics were about that did you sit down and say look well if my career is going to go that way if it's going to go i have to sort of make this decision and I'm going to go back to the UK
2: so for me it was as you know I'm sure it was for uh, many people at the time it was very much um, with COVID and Mm. this like unprecedented UK US travel ban I had just gone through a period where I couldn't travel uh, because of the immigration backlog with my green card application And, and then COVID happened And suddenly the world just felt really large and I, um, for various reasons, like due to uh, family here needed to travel back and I couldn't, um, and that was really difficult. And I think it changed my perspective. I very much moved back for personal reasons, not for any decision related to my career. Actually, when I moved back, I didn't have this post in place. And so it was the first time in my life when I moved back and I essentially felt like I was unemployed. And I didn't know whether I was going to be successful in this application or not. And I was actually in many ways an IMG in some ways, again, because...
0: International medical graduate, Well, yes.
2: not in the sense of, obviously, my medical degree was from here, but in some of the other ways, because I hadn't done F1 of F2. Mm. And the, here, you know, it's unfortunate, the US-UK transferability of training, it's very small. Um, it doesn't extend very far. And I hadn't done F1 of F2, and... I was had to reapply for a provisional license with the GMC. Um, I hadn't done many of the things that UK trainees would have done like audits, things you get points for on the application. Um, so I felt like it was a step back um, career wise was it, it, because I didn't know how I was gonna end up rather than an active decision for my career. I very much came back to be uh, closer to family and friends. And the familiarity. I think one of the best things I got from the U.S. was honestly finding my way to radiology because I'd never even thought about it in med school. I hadn't barely experienced it and once I found that and I really loved it, I really loved my job out there, I just felt like I can be, I'll be happy doing this wherever I am as long as it's radiology and so it it gave me that confidence that uh, to do it here.
0: You're now in an ACF post so tell us about what you're doing in that from an academic perspective and the kind of time that you've given and what kind of allocation of that time?
2: So I was real lucky to get this ACF post. I absolutely love it. So in my first year, I did three months at the end of the year uh, because that's sort of how it's set up. But now I actually, so I work with my programme director for my ROTA that we've split the time. So I get it on a weekly basis. And it's it suits me so well because I get a day and a half at the moment um, for academic work and the rest of the time I'm clinical and um I very be- I, I feel like I enjoy my clinical work more because I have those breaks in the week of my academic work and equally the other way around I enjoy my research more because I I know that it's a scarcity in the week and so I really make the most of that time um I think or I try to and my I'm working with um in um, GI radiology specifically uh, small bowel imaging and Crohn's disease uh, with my academic supervisor who uh, is a, a GI radiologist. And um, I think having that time is, you know it's really is very, very lucky. I, I think, you know I think there should be more of these programs out there. I don't think there's even many for radiology. I remember when I applied there was only guys and UCL who had them in London. And considering how many, I mean, there's several academic centers here. It's a shame that sort of there isn't enough funding for every programme to offer them every year. And on a national, yeah, I mean, I could misquote, but I think there's about 10 ECFs for radiology scattered around.
0: I happen to be doing a little bit of work on this right now. And there were like in 2022, there were nine advertised ACF posts for radiology. And eight of those were in competition with other specialties. So that's not many at all. That is such a shame. Okay. So you've talked about small bowel imaging and GI radiology. That's quite different to what you initially did in neuro. Has there been a link or has it really been about the softer skills, the other experiences around research that you've carried through with you?
2: So I always thought I was going to end up doing neuro. In med school, I was like a neuro girl. I was heavily involved in the neuro society, all that stuff. Uh, But then what actually changed my mind was when I did my surgical internship and I just Loved abdominal pathology and looking at those scans and um, post surgical imaging, bowel imaging. Um, So, I, yeah, I then from then on knew that I wanted to do what they would call body radiology in the US, but here, GI radiology. And Mm -hmm. I was, it was just fortuitous that my, it was the academic supervisor for this post is also a GI radiologist. And so I was very pleased that that aligned
0: yeah very strong at UCL so that's a great place to be to do that yeah Julia your job now how much time have you got for research academic activity and what kind of things have you been up to what kind of work have you been doing in that
1: yeah so tom that's a that's a very nice question because actually at the moment my job is mainly a clinical job. So I don't really have formal time uh, for research. I actually do it in my spare time. I do it in my SPA. So that's where I really get to do my research. Um, and this is also why I'm thinking because I have this interest in research and I'm thinking maybe, you know, in the future, once I will go back with Matt, from math leave with no rush, but I'm considering the idea of maybe doing a PhD, a sort of, you know, part-time one, maybe parallel to my uh, clinical, you know, you know, job and commitment, just to have that time which is sort of protected and dedicated to academia and research because it's something that I enjoy. And on one end, I feel like I have done quite a bit of it. I've dedicated quite a lot of my time to research and it would be a sort of a shame to, you know, uh, struggle to keep going, right?
0: Yeah, because the PhD isn't just about the the, the letters at the end. It's about that time and that space to really engage and think about what these research problems are all about.
1: Totally, definitely. And I think this is really what I'm feeling now that, you know, probably in Italy, I did have the time uh, even without taking part of a formal programme, while uh, here maybe to have the time, I actually need to... um, maybe have something more formal, more defined and a PhD would
0: be a great way to find this sort of safe space, right? Yeah, just going to ask Gina about PhD because that's really one of the primary outcome goals for the ACF. Have you been thinking about that and what, moving towards that?
2: Um, I definitely have been thinking about it um, and it's definitely something that I plan to pursue um, and I think sometime this year we'll be thinking about funding applications and putting those things in place. I think, in general, the London School of Radiology would like you to do it after you've passed your 2A exams, so it would probably be something um, that I would hope to do after I finish my SD3 year. And so I think sometime this year would be the time uh, to start putting in a funding application, also allowing for potentially not being successful the first time around and um, and things like that. Yes. But I, d- I definitely do want to do one.
0: There's time to fit it in, I think. And that is one of the big challenges for radiologists with the structure of training. But good luck with that. Yes, yeah, sorry, Julia, let's come back to you and it's about your current research. What's the nitty gritty of what you're doing right now? I'm really keen to hear that.
1: For example, we've been doing some work on patients with COVID. I guess, you know, there's been lots of research during COVID, but we've done something to look at the outcome of patients in ITU, for example, also based on the findings on thoracic imaging related to PE, hemorrhage and many other other, you know, findings related to that. Um, In terms of cardiac imaging, I also do some CMR and I've been, you know, um, helping out with some protocols on lung perfusion imaging that we are developing within the cardiac MRI, but also, you know, for patients with pulmonary hypertension. And this is something which is quite great and I found very interesting and very, you know, new, done in a few centers. I've also tried to, again, this is something great, I think, because of my connection I still have with the Italian group. Uh, we are trying to be part of a, a multi-centre study, which is uh, based on an international level and the main centre is in Italy. But, you know, we're trying to be one of the uh, multiple centres taking part of the study. And This is on cardiac CT, actually stress perfusion. Um, so, you know, something really uh, nice. And
0: That's where research doesn't have the same boundaries, like working or collaborating with people in the US, in, in Finland, in Denmark, in australia and it's just great it's almost without borders with this obviously when you're working with data there are sometimes some restrictions but i think that's just a fantastic facet of research always has been if you look at with my travel history over the last 10 years it's like all these different places i've been able to go to i've talked about that before in the podcast so Now I'm going to come to one last big question, or rather, trying to pin you down on one more thing. That is, Gina. Let's come to you. And, I mean, I guess not sticking your neck out too far, but what do you think could be done to improve academic training, or the maybe the structure or the culture in radiology in the UK from your experiences and what you have seen?
2: Um, so I think with um, I think my experience uh, lies mostly within you know the training. Um, so I think uh, there's a couple of things. I think one thing that the US programs, I think, are very good at. So there's a very strong focus on mentorship. You know, they pick their own trainees and those trainees spend, a, spend their time largely at the same hospital or different sites of the same hospital. And so you get that longitudinal um, training experience. I think in radiology, we are relatively lucky compared to other specialties that we run through. But I think trainees here spend much more time going out to other hospitals. Um, for example, you know, DGHs and, and things like that, depending on where you are. That um, in some ways, uh, it's harder to build up those longitudinal relationships with your uh, consultants, I think, here. I'm sure that gets better as you pick your subspecialties and you spend more time within that, but it's certainly early, early on in the training. Uh, the second thing that I think they do very well is there's a very strong focus there on the broader aspect of being a doctor, the focus on health policy, health economics, informatics. I mean, these are parts of the core curriculum um, in their training programs and formalized training and teaching and opportunities in these areas that I think really enriches the training experience. And I think there's so much opportunity to add that here. And I think would be really interesting in a health system like the NHS and with all the politics around that at the moment. Um, I'm sure you know that's for the future here, um, but I think at the moment that's much better there. So that's definitely one thing I would change.
0: Well, I'll just say that's a really interesting take because I will also also say to my trainees when I try and grab them when they first arrive is that research should involve all aspects, whether it's not just clinical research or um, basic science, but, you know, management, health economics, informatics, um, education as well. So, yeah. Oh, and for
2: research, you know, I think... Um, the focus on getting trainees involved in research is, is much greater there at academic institutions as well. Um, tr- consultants there are actively encouraged to have trainees as part of their research projects. And I think actually for academic uh, consultants where I was, it's part of their, when they get promoted up their professor ranks. It's so one of the things they look at is um, having had trainees as the first author of papers in which they're senior author. I think here that focus isn't quite as strong at the moment it's not there
0: no 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 so this incentivization is embedding it um yeah look this is what the crash crash podcast mission is all about so thanks Gina I'm gonna ask Julia the same question about what you think um could be done to improve um academic training in the UK
1: yes well I think um I really agree with what Gina just said Um, and I think that this is something that as well I've experienced in Italy you know trying to uh, motivate a bit more um, students and you know trainee to take part research. Uh, One thing that we touched already upon but it's uh, really the time that you have to do some research because I think if you can sort of embed a bit of time dedicated to that just to uh, let the trainee um, have some sort of experience with research, this would make a big difference, I think, could really make a big impact because some people might just not like it and that's absolutely fine, but some other people might actually find that it's interesting, it's you know, challenging, and this could be something that really might give them much more opportunity and chances to actually take on research and keep going thinking again about the 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 UK but I think this is more like probably a general problem I don't think this is only UK based I have to say um, on the um, bureaucracy right sometimes it's, it can be quite tedious and slow mm-hmm. and to get to you know uh, actually start with something it can take a while obviously this is something that again um, it's not just the UK I have to say it's a bit like that everywhere or at least in many places I don't know how it is in the USA maybe Gina you can tell us about that but uh, if it's any quicker than here but um, that is something which could be a bit tedious I have to say and could probably yeah yes
0: And, and if you have people with the experience in place maybe projects running maybe understanding of the system in that mentorship or supervisory role then it's much easier to Sort of say, look, OK, this exists, but let's just not worry about that too much. I'll take care of that. Or, the, you know, their machine is is, is running and the, the trainees can just get involved with a small part of a bigger project and then Definitely. develop to take o- ownership and get involved. I'm just going to look back through what we've covered here it's just been so much we sort of focus on how we can look forward I mean improve is always a tricky word but to say we can optimize and make the most of the opportunities it looks like we could really embed that culture of research in training the time in the US and in Italy that is given over to research as part of radiology training that is something we really do not do well here at all and and I've had conversations it's not that people don't want to allow it it's just that our structure doesn't seem to have it and I think. Gina, you talked about the funding. I'm just hitting some highlights here. The funding that you had to go if you got to present at a conference, that's, a, that's just amazing. And longitudinal mentorship opportunities, professors that you talked about, those really important people that were there to help you at the start of your career. We need to find those people for our radiology trainees. And I know Radiant and the Royal College of Radiologists are doing as much as they possibly can we're hoping for a bright future. But when it comes towards the end of the podcast, I like to try and pin you down with a really difficult and awkward question. Gina, I'll come to you first. And it's like, so much already has happened in your life. Where do you think you're going to be in 10 years time?
2: Oh, that is a difficult question. You know, I think that one thing I have realized in my 20s is that things just don't often plan out the way you think they will. So who knows? But if I you know, hopefully I love living in London. I'd love to still be living in London and working here. I'd love to be doing a I'd be continuing in, down an academic trajectory um, where I have some time in a week to pursue um, radiology research and other time for clinical work. That would be, you know, my ideal Um, set up that I'm really enjoying at the moment Um, hopefully by then I will be a consultant somewhere but other than that I don't know I don't know I I try not to think so far ahead but that would be the three sort of things that I, I hope I can take off
0: great and Julia yourself 10 years time
2: yeah, I mean, I agree. That's a difficult
1: question, but I think I will be here in the UK. I mean, I have a UK husband. I have two kids here and I'm happy in the UK. So that's, that's you know, and I love London. I don't think, I can't see myself moving somewhere else for now. So hopefully, you know, I will just be here. And um, yeah, I'll definitely, you know, I definitely love my clinical job, my clinical work, and I will be uh, definitely wanting to uh, keep going with that. I'd also love, as we, you know, we've been talking about, my research. So hopefully, you know, I will have developed a bit more in that uh, in that in that way. Maybe with something more formal. Maybe as we said uh, with a PhD. But something that I, I I would really like to do, and this is probably something that also relates to what you mentioned earlier, is also you know to be able to sort of uh, motivate younger people to you know take part into research, to be a sort of you know help and possibly I don't want to say an example because definitely I'm not an example, but you know sort of maybe mm, support and. Uh, uh yeah uh, try to to, yeah. to make research going for younger people that's something that yeah would be would be great then my husband sometimes comes and tells me oh I would love to do maybe a few months in the UK a few months in Italy in our future and you know with maybe an <laughs> academic job you can do that fact, I'm like well, yeah maybe be a bit a bit you know pretentious but we'll
2: see
0: yeah when you say making an example of that can often be a negative thing but what we definitely have in both of you is just absolutely really brilliant examples of careers that are embracing research and clinical radiology so look I'm so grateful for you sharing these with us it's just been absolutely fascinating to hear your ideas and your experiences from different perspectives and I just want to wish you both all the luck as we come towards the end of our discussion. And look, it would be great to hear from you again at some point in the future. So thank you both, Julia and Gina.
2: Thank you very much, Tom. It was uh, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. It was very nice to meet you both virtually.
0: So that finally brings us to the end of another journey, all safe and sound back where we started. But as always with travel, just that little bit more enlightened. That Really, is it for now? But don't go into withdrawal just yet. We have one more podcast planned for this year, an end of year special, if you will, in which we will be talking to experts completely outside of the world of radiology who have used radiology imaging techniques in rather surprising ways in their own research. It's going to be another fascinating outing. So please do join us again for that. Well, there we go. It's a huge thanks to Alex Dobson this episode for her support, along with the Royal College of Radiologists events team and to the college itself for continuing to keep us on air. And of course, also to Sue Mercer of 1A Squared for her invaluable sound editing support and creative input. As usual, the show notes will be available at the RCR website. And if you have any questions about what we have discussed today or would like to get in touch about any crash related matters, including ideas for questions, future guests, themes or or topics for discussion, then you can email them to conf at rcr.ac.uk. That's C-O-N-F at rcr.ac.uk. Or you can reach out to me on Twitter with the handle at Tom Please do get in touch. And here's our regular reminder about Radiant, the radiology academic network for trainees, and you can find them at www.radiantuk.com, where you can get yourself and your training scheme involved in their nationally coordinated research projects that are continuing to reach new heights. And we also know that they're working really strongly on trying to develop mentorship opportunities across the UK. If you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure to like and subscribe, leave a review and, of course, share with everyone that you know. I've been your host, Tom Termezine. Until next time, stay safe.